0: Hello and welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. Today we're speaking with Cale Burke, co-author and imagineer of the book, PLC 2.0, Collaborating for Observable Impact in Today's Schools. Cale also wrote Changing Change using learner-centered design and was a district principal of innovation in British Columbia. He's a former teacher and high school principal who has worked with educators, district leaders, healthcare professionals, and industry leaders in Canada, the U.S., Australia, and Asia to reimagine the experience of teaching, leadership, and collaborative learning. Now, if you like this interview, connect with Intersection Education. You can go to our website, intersectioneducation.com. You can follow us on Twitter at IntersectionEd or even on Facebook and we really appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes and leave us a review. Here's my conversation with Cale Burke. Welcome, Cale Burke, to the Intersection Education Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, how are you doing today?
1: Great. Thanks for having me today. Excited to, uh, to be here. It's a rainy day here uh, in Camloops, which is atypical at this time of year. So it's a perfect day. <laughs> to be uh, inside in front of the computer screen. I'm excited to to hang out today. It's great.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you too. So uh, I want to start off with with talking a little bit about your book, PLC 2.0. Now, I think that most people are familiar with the term uh, professional learning community. I I still think that it's probably not as understood as most people think they understood it. But I I know that you're taking a little bit of a different slant on it. And I'd like to... for you to maybe start off with telling me about what do you think works well when when we have this idea of PLCs, and and then maybe let's get into what do you think that uh, you're proposing for changes to make them more effective.
1: Yeah, it's a <clears throat> it's a great question. Maybe I can can give just a little bit of, of background. I always like to introduce myself as a, a recovering principal. Um, mostly because I used to, you know, read the books and write blogs and go to conferences. And then I'd come back and sort of shake all the knowledge that I had gained all over my poor teachers and kind of wonder why people ran in, in every different direction. And, you know, I, I chased probably a lot of shiny objects uh, in my time as a, in the principalship. Um, but one of the things that seemed to have the most promise was this concept of this professional uh, learning community, the idea of providing embedded collaborative time in the timetable for for teachers to reflect on their practice and you know so I, I just um, decided hey this is this is what we 're going to do and as a staff, we sort of jumped in with both feet and and created that timetable with collaborative time and essentialized the curriculum and common assessments the whole the whole gamut and at um, in a relatively short period of time, we were recognized as one of these sort of model plc schools in Canada, but what was kind of interesting is I began to to notice a few things, and th- these are some of the challenges that I hope the the book starts starts to help uh, teachers and leaders to address. Was sort of first of all, the the classroom experience for students hadn't really changed all that much as a result of us collaborating together. The students were were doing similar work and. But they also had a similar level of engagement. The, the same students were, were being successful. The same students were receiving interventions. So, so that didn't look a lot different. And it actually, it was interesting because teachers, after a while, began to complain about collaborating. Um, more and more outcomes became essential. Um, our specials didn't know what to collaborate about. Um, collaboration time suddenly became a lot, of, a lot of work. And we were even having trouble getting people leading collaboration time because it seemed like another prep. Um, and at one point, kind of the low point is when one of our best teachers said, you know, can I collaborate by myself? Which was, you know, the research is not super clear on that one, I don't think. But this is again, this is coming, coming from one of our, our very best teachers. And I think the, the final straw was when our superintendent asked a, a pretty basic question, which was, what's the impact of your collaborative time and the professional learning that you've been doing? And, and really that was difficult for me to answer and, and interestingly it was about that time that the Gates study came out um, with the the teachers knows knows best survey and where they surveyed teachers across North America and, and they actually uh, there was this huge disconnect between what administrators thought really helped in terms of professional learning communities and what teachers thought and there was such a huge gap between those. And this is really what motivated us to, to start to think about the, the, the context of PLC 2.0 is, is really the question, what's the observable impact of our collaboration time and professional learning and where we define, uh, define impact as the observable changes in classroom practice? So really, what was the impact of professional learning communities in terms of what we saw that was was different? So I think the biggest change for PLCs that we're trying to address in the observable impact model is really which of our actions are making a difference and what are we observing that tells us that it's it's making a difference. So I think that's really the the key thrust behind um, the, the observable impact model of PLC
0: 2.0. Yeah. Uh, I actually remember at that point working on Vancouver Island and a bunch of teachers that I was working with were going out to, to your high school and looking at the embedded uh, professional learning community and that embeddable time that, that you guys had. So yeah, you guys were, we're well known throughout the country and that's really interesting for you to even be saying, yeah, we were, we were well known. And that's, that's, I kind of like the fact that you've said, Hey, we still need to be vulnerable. We're still, we don't, still don't have all the answers And, uh, getting to that observable impact, I think that, that, that does add a lot. I have a question, though, around that. So when you come up with the answer for observable impact, when you say, Hey, what are some of the things that we will, what have some schools or what have you seen as an answer to that? So, for instance, they, they put into, in place this, this change. They're, they're looking at observable impact what do they point to? Is it PET results? Is it different strategies? Is it different student skills or competencies? What have you seen the most effective um, observable impacts?
1: Well, maybe an example might be the best way to to think about it. Because today, we might say that, you know, kids aren't resilient. Okay, so, you know, we might say that, you know, we were, when we were young, we had to walk uphill, a snowstorm both ways and cart wood and groceries and all those sorts of things and kids today just aren't resilient and and then sort of be upset and complain about this generation and, and that sort of thing and so to put that through the observable impact lens what we would do um, typically with either a collaborative team uh, a school or or something like that as uh, uh, an organization would be to say well So what are you actually observing right now in students that says that this is an instructional challenge for you? So if you say that resilience is an instructional challenge, then don't just say, well, they need to be more resilient. What are you currently seeing right now that says that this is a challenge? And people are very quick to say, well, you know, they're they're not turning in assignments. Um, We don't see them engaging in the material in the class they they give up, they only make one attempt, and so what we do is we really want to hear this sort of invective that comes from, from educators and from leaders to say, great, because if this is what we don't want to see, then using the sort of Costanzian logic from Seinfeld, then the opposite would be what you do want to see, and we actually use a process to help people use some of those challenges to actually pivot to what we would want to see in students, but But really and truly, that's the the easiest part. The easiest part is defining what we wanna see from students. We then have the, the organization start to think, okay, if this is what we wanna see from students, what are the best practices that we would see in a classroom from an educator that leads to those things in students? And furthermore, what are the tasks, the activities and the assessments that would allow us to observe these in our students. And the goal of this is actually not to make people feel bad or or anything like that. It's really to guide the learning that we need to do next. Because if we are having challenges with students being resilient and we have a clear and observable vision of what resilience looks like, then really and truly it's our actions and our tasks and our assessments that lead to that happening in our classroom It's really then getting teachers and getting uh, school leaders to think, well, what's the learning that we want to do? And a question we always ask is if there was a a professional development conference and each of those things that you feel that you need to learn more about was a topic um, uh, over top of the doors of the conference, which door would you and your staff want to work through? Which which one would you say, gosh, that's the one. If there was a session that would solve that, that's what we want to learn more about. It really is the idea of then taking a challenge that we are having, turning that into a vision and then actually turning that into a vision of the learning that we want to do. So really, that's been the methodology that we found, because one of the things I, I think in in previous PLC models is that we, we presuppose that we already know what to do. And of course, if we already knew what to do, we'd probably already be doing it. So the idea behind the observable impact model is really to lead us um, into a hypothesis that says if we try this action then we hope to see these things more frequently in our students then we go out and test it and come back and start to connect our actions to impact so really that's kind of the the way that we approach that with with schools is to really get down to that that smallest observable piece that we can see in our students because ultimately um, If we don't see a change in our students, then our actions actually really haven't had any impact or lasting impact on our kids. So that's kind of the way we would approach it.
0: Yeah, no, I know. Uh, there's so much there that I love and that I want to talk about. Um, the first one is I love that you're putting, what do we need to learn to make this change, this idea of the professional learning happens with the teachers, and then we can make that happen. I would like you to talk a little bit more about that vision of a learner. Now, you talked about, and I think that you were giving the example where, hey, we, we believe that our students are you know lacking in this kind of thing and it can oftentimes go down that negative train, but I'm sure that the inverse is true too. We can actually have a conversation around what do we really want to see and you, you mentioned one way to, to, to flip that switch into the positive. Why do you think it's so important to have this vision of a learner or this direction about what to work on and what do you think the importance is of co-creating that is and you kind of mentioned with that whole idea is a lot of time the administrators and the teachers have very different ideas of what we need to work on
1: well I think it's interesting you know I some of the things that tend to to be a part of our vision statements that are sort of over top of our school or on our letterhead and masthead and all the rest are i've rarely seen an ugly vision they're all beautiful they're you know they're they're filled with these big and great aspirational terms but yet if we were to ask a group of 20 of us sitting in a room what critical thinking just use that as a convenient example what critical thinking actually was and I've done this in focus groups, we'll get 20 very different answers. And most of them are laden with, with terminology that is not only ambiguous, but anyone outside of education would look at us and go, what are you guys talking about? We all know we're we're the masters of education ease, aren't we? We use terms that not only people outside of education don't necessarily get, but honestly, I think some of the times we don't even get. And so what, you know, I've, I I was lucky enough to participate uh, in instructional rounds years ago and and dr. Richard Elmore at at Harvard, I think said it best he said if you can 't see it you can 't assume it and so if the the, the, the vision that we have um, that we can 't actually see it then it to me it 's more like a, a mirage, so we really want to go down to that level of detail that not maybe the best lens to use is, is if we were to hand a series of look fors to our parents or to a layperson from the community would they be able to know that we were working on critical thinking? Would they be able to see it? And the, if the answer is, is they, they, no, no, the parents wouldn't understand or the lay person wouldn't understand. Then to me, that's where it's too ambiguous because we are also lay people. And moreover, if we want our students to learn something, we talk about clear learning targets when it comes to things around curriculum. What are our clear learning targets when it comes to things about creative thinking? What does that look like and what would we actually do with our students to make sure that we can see creative thinking? And you brought up co-creation, that's the beauty of some of the tools that we've created is it really um, asks us to take multiple perspectives about what a vision actually looks like because what creative thinking looks like to students, to parents, to the community, to employers, it's really important that when we're creating that vision, it's one that anyone can actually see and there's beauty in the simplicity of it. And I think that's, you know, something that we've also learned from from things like the universal design for learning is that when we can reduce um, concepts to language that everyone can understand, we all benefit. And really, that's the idea behind taking multiple perspectives when we develop a vision of a learner is to make sure that we're not into that education ease zone where not only are lay people and, and people outside of education might not understand. But actually, we might not understand and our students might not understand either. So that's kind of that that importance of, of co-creation. Now, you know what? It takes effort and it takes time. But I, I think we spend a lot of effort and time on vision because it ultimately ends up being the ultimate decision maker for us. So if we're not moving our professional learning to have our vision, um, our, pardon me, our reality move closer to our vision, then my wonder is, is why are we doing that professional learning? So that's kind of an all encompassing way to me to look at that observable vision and say, when we co-create it, it actually acts as that North star for us to be able to think about the learning that we need to do and the impact that we have.
0: I want to touch on something that you mentioned, and it's this idea between student learning and adult learning. And I think that there is a little bit of a flip flop there and that we're sometimes guilty of both sides of it. And what I mean is that there are some times when, you know, learning for students is different than adult learning, but there are a lot of times when it's not. Um, and, and they're maybe more similar than we want to, than we want to, uh, not that we want to assume, but that, that we, we kind of go over things that we know are a good instructional practice. Can you talk to me a little bit about that interplay between student learning and adult learning and some of the similarities and
1: differences? You know, I, I'm, I think about student learning and adult learning, but I, I wonder if another way to think about it is is student and adult engagement. And I think that's where I, there's a huge amount of crossover to me because I think, you know, when we look at the 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 pandemic, pandemic, the COVID crisis that we've um, all been going through and, and actually continue to go through. What we realized very quickly, I think we all saw is that adults um, and sometimes we say that, you know, we can't teach an old dog new tricks. We talk about that as as we all get older. But really and truly, March the 15th, things changed very quickly for, for many of us around North America and around the world. And what I saw was I saw a group of adults change very, very quickly. And I think part of the reason if someone would have said to the adults, you know, um, in February that, you know, by the way, in six weeks, you're all going to be doing virtual learning. I mean, we probably all would have laughed, cried and, and said the person was crazy. But the reality is, is that it happened. And and I started to think about, so why did that happen? And I think we saw such a high level of adult engagement for for sort of four reasons. First of all, because we needed to, and we're much more engaged in something when we need to do it. Um, The second thing was is that um, when we can see it and see what it looks like, when we started to give uh, the support to the teachers in such a way that they could see what virtual learning would start to look like. And this is where many of us struggled is we didn't have a clear vision of what that looked like. But when when. See it. And then the next piece is, is when they can start it, meaning we've differentiated to meet teachers where they were at um, and so that we could start to move people forward and then finally and i think this was the most interesting one is the engagement of, of us as adults in education really increased when we had to show it i mean we were all nervous weren't we that now everyone was going to see what teaching and learning looked like in the classroom because the classroom ended up being people's homes And so what we all did, and and we did, and I was so proud of educators, we stepped up, we brought the A game forward because we knew we had an audience and it wasn't just our kids anymore, it was our parents and our community. So when you think about it, that sort of need need it, see it, start it, and show it is something that works really well for adults when it comes to engagement, but when you think about the same thing with students, do our students really need some of the skills that we are teaching them today? And and if they do, how do we make it so that they feel that they need it? Not so that we feel that they need it. So if they need it, if they can see it, meaning they have a clear vision. So if we were to say, you know, it's critical thinking is really important, students. That's not really going to help people, but how do we create situations where students need to be critical thinkers in their context? And then, of course, we have to define for them and help them co-create that vision of what it would look like. So there's that see it piece when we differentiate for our students in a way so that every one of them can start it. And then finally, when we create those authentic opportunities for them to show it, that to me is where the real parallels are between adult and I'm going to say engagement, which to me leads to more learning and student engagement, which leads to more learning. So I think there are some really unique connections that we've discovered through COVID and a, and a big silver lining is that the same ways that we are engaged, we need to make sure we're holding ourselves to that standard when we're hoping that kids are going to be engaged in things, you know, like sort of long division in the scientific method, which maybe were some of the things that I would have taught as a teacher. So I think there's a lot of parallels that are there.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that that's a really um, uh, interesting, but also um, helpful framework to look through. I love that shift from instead of thinking about learning to think about engagement. I want to talk about education just a little bit more generally. And I wonder if there's something about learning or education that you believe is true. But when you bring it up or you talk about it, you get a little bit of pushback on um, people. Disagree with you; um, they don't actually think that that's the case. Anything that pops out when you're traveling around North America and the world?
1: Yeah, I you know there is there's um there's this phrase that's out there that that when people say, well, you know, the knowledge is in the room, and I I've heard a lot of educational luminaries say things like this, and I I just I couldn't disagree more. I think that as educators we're doing the best that we can in our context. But when it comes to things like, you know, equity or or differentiation or or creating authentic real life tasks to engage students, I'm I hope we're willing to acknowledge that there are times when we actually don't know the answer. And the cool thing is, is that when we look at the increase, we would say, in the diversity in our classrooms, that means we also have an increase in the diversity of our communities. And I think one of the most important things that we can do is get outside of education and start to look at different contexts and see what we can learn, because my contention is is that the knowledge is not always in the room. And if we think the knowledge is always in the room, it really, I think, prevents us from from taking advantage and leveraging the great diversity of opinions and thoughts and minds that are outside of education. And I, I know that that's one of the things that I hear because I do work outside of education as well is that, The the people that are in industry, private sector, healthcare, all those sorts of things would love to spend more time talking to schools and students about what they see as important from their perspective. And so I think that's something to me where I do get some pushback from that sometimes, but it's not meant to be um, insulting to the educational community. It's actually to say, if we really wanna be learners, then we have to recognize that there's lots of people that have lots of knowledge outside of education our job is actually to go try and find out how we can use that and bring it back into education. So that's kind of the the phrase for me that that kind of grates me from time to time in education.
0: It's interesting you bring that up actually, because I was just uh, listening to a Yuval Noah Harari interview, and he talks a lot about the exact same thing. He kind of talks about how people and it relates to your other one about the vision. It's like, you know, no one can sell you a vision of your own community. No, you have to do that in a in a co-created way. But once you have the vision and then you know what you want to work on for the people that are in front of you and in your community, well, at that point, then you go out to the experts and people outside your field and you, you, you look at the research and you say, oh, okay, well, this is probably... Um, uh, uh, an efficient way or, or this strategy will help us get what we want. So it's like you have to be community-based around the vision and around the assessment of what, what you need. But then you can go out into the wider community and really talk about what you're going to do about it t- to make that vision a reality. So it's, yeah, I think you're in good company there.
1: <laughs> well, you know, one thing that is interesting is we've, many of us have seen the the concept of start with the why and how important um, it is to start with the why. And I've I've always kind of disagreed with that. Um, my wonder is, is, is it more important for us to start with the who? And the reason I say that is, is because our reason for why a, a child needs to learn this versus a child's reason for why they need to learn this can be very different. And my why can be very different from your why. So I think our job is more importantly than starting with the why, is actually starting to really get to know who our learner is in front of us and what their why might be. Because their why can be very different from ours. And that's another one of those phrases that I think it sounds good in theory, but one of the things we have to be very cautious of is if my why is the reason why we're doing things, there could be a whole room of people who don't share my why. And I think my job is to try and find out what all of our whys might be and see how we can move forward from that. So that's kind of dovetailing with what you're saying there. And I agree with you.
0: Yeah. I love that one. Start with the who that's a good one. I'm going to put that one in the bank. Hey, we've learned a lot about learning environments uh, over the past six months in education. I would, I would uh, contend that um, many people uh, were surprised at, at perhaps where learning could happen and how that might happen. When you're thinking about some of the best uh, learning experiences that you've had, um, the learning environments, people coming together, can you think about what about those uh, environments or those experiences made them powerful? And perhaps even dovetail that or link that to what we've learned around the in-person versus the online learning environments Sometimes there are common threads, no matter if you're face-to-face or over uh, the a Zoom call or a Google Meet. What do you think it is the most important things about those learning environments to bring learning forward that will, that will help?
1: Well, and I think coming back to maybe something I said a little bit earlier, and not to, to overemphasize the, the point, but that sort of need it, see it, start it, and show it. When I think back to my own sort of professional learning experiences, I, I, I really think about the ones that were, were most important to me were the ones where it was solving a problem for me in my context. And, you know, that's coming back to that why piece that you were just talking about, Corey, which I think is sort of important, uh, really important. But who's why? And so one of the things that when I see the highest levels of engagement for myself and for others is because it, it solves a problem for me in the immediate future. I need this, and and or it's something that I've been thinking about for a long period of time. And I wow, someone's finally got the uh, some sort of silver bullet, or at least the thought of a silver bullet that's going to help me um, in the in the near future. And you know, one of the things that we hear a lot about kids is that kids don't accept irrelevance anymore. And I, I think the same is true for adults. How many of us just on a whim, if someone were to say again a year ago. You know what? All of you should be uh, should learn about virtual learning. How many of us really would have? And I, you know, some of us would have because it's oh, it's kind of interesting. Maybe a direction I want to go. But the rest of us would have said, "Hey, I'm, I'm too busy with a whole bunch of other things." So that needed piece. And then, and then, then it comes back to sort of that vision concept that we we're talking about just now in terms of, you know, can I actually see what it looks like in my context? You know, it's. When you go to a, a, a basketball clinic and you have a coach that's talking about a play where, you know, he has someone run a back cut and there's a big slam dunk at the end and I'm coaching grade sixes, well, that doesn't really help me all that much. What does it look like in my context, you know? And so I think that see it piece comes with it. And then and then, of course, is it easy to start? And I think that's, you know, we talk a lot about that, that threshold for engagement. And I think, you know, how do we make it so that people can take that smallest first step so that they can actually feel some success right off the start and see some early successes and get started? And then finally, I think when I've been in professional learning situations where I know that there's a tangible product at the end that I'm going to have to either use for other people or show to other people, I. I feel it. I've got to. I've got to be accountable to this, and and I want to do a good job as a result. So I think I think those four points really, if we were to look at virtual environments versus face to face environments, that sort of need it see it start it show it model I think holds up fairly well in terms of the the most engaging learning environments that I've seen to this point.
0: Yeah, I love it. It, uh, I I think it does hold up to me, too. I'm trying to think of a context where that wouldn't be helpful. And uh, I can't come up with one yet. Now... um Let's get in maybe a little bit more personally, but I was wondering if you had a favorite success or a favorite failure that you think about that helped you learn an important lesson that you might share with us. Something either very positive or something negative that you come back to and say, hey, in that moment, I learned something that I think is really important that I will carry with me.
1: You know, I I think probably um for much of my early administrative career i i wasn't necessarily confident in my own skin and so i think it was very difficult for me to be vulnerable and i a lot of the times i think and this is sort of on the more on the the big fail side i interpreted when people were were asking questions as challenges and and you know i always tried to come up with the right answer or or thought they were resisting or all these sorts of things and and I think that's something that, to me, um, I've learned more and more in, in my career is that rather than trying to have all the answers, it's really trying to welcome and understand great questions. And I think that's something that's kind of guided me. And that's not sort of a, a one failure or a you know a one success type thing. It's been an evolution where, when we, uh, I think, start to recognize um, in leadership or, or just in education in general that that we actually don't have to have all the answers. And, and, you know, let's be real, people already know that we don't have all the answers. I think once you get to that point, it just kind of allows you to to really sort of embrace that there are so many people out there with so much knowledge from, from kids to parents, to educators, to the community. I think that's that's the most important lesson that that I learned is being able to be comfortable not knowing the answer um, is something that I, as much as maybe I, I wish I did, I've actually learned so much by not knowing all the answers and 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 really understanding that that lots of people can help me with that. So I think that vulnerability thing is something that's um it, it took it took a while, um and and now I think that when I, when I'm at that point, I just really enjoy when people come up with great questions, and I think it's something that uh, that we can all embrace.
0: Yeah, vulnerability is it, it seems to be being talked about i don't know if it's the Brene brown effect or or whatnot but i I think that everyone who encounters it sees the importance of the subject and uh, i wonder about that do you have any tips for maybe creating a culture and i'm not talking about yourself like uh things that you could do but i'm also talking about you know um creating a, a school or a school division where vulnerability is encouraged. Anything that you've seen that would help uh, create that culture so that people are more open and therefore then have a little bit of confidence?
1: Well, I think, you know, uh, Warren Berger's book, A More Beautiful Question, is one that I always come back to. And in this book, he, he talks a lot, a lot about the idea that if we look at the questioners and the non-questioners, who's coming out ahead I really think that the the uh, the artistry and a, a school that is based in asking um, really challenging and compelling questions uh, is one to me that's going to just go so far, um, because I, I think a lot of, of what we tend to do sometimes is just think that we have to have the answers, and yeah, what I really love, and and I was I was guilty of this, is you know the sort of solutionitis as a as a principal and a, a district person is sort of solving people's problems in the least number of notes. Um, rather than just being better at asking really great questions and I think when if if we can sort of start from that um, and again I come back to that um, starting with the who and and really understanding who our learners are but then but then sort of getting out there and, and thinking about what are the compelling questions that we need to answer and when we see and I I think you know when you talk about that vulnerability piece um, we're we're not great at really understanding why we are successful or why we are not successful. And I think that's something that we really need to dig in. And this kind of comes back to the observable impact model is not just saying that that worked or that didn't work, that didn't work, pardon me, but why did that work? And what, what what is our definition of that worked? What was the impact that we had? And, and what were our actions that led to that? And I think, when when you think about the work of uh, collective teacher efficacy and Jenny Donahue, and and she talks about you know the idea of connecting action to impact, that was really the thrust of the work that we were doing, and I think that's the key thing of any in my mind successful organization is the the very best organizations, and I'm, I'll tilt t- my cap here. I'm a a Boston sports fan. If I look at the the New England Patriots, like them or dislike them, they've had a great deal of success. But what's really interesting is their coach, week in and week out, after they've won, they're they're trying to go out and get better. And I think that's the thing to me that when we have organizations that 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 look at themselves and say, "Why did that happen? And how can we can make it? How can we make it better?" That to me is a real recipe for success.
0: I'm interested to know if you've got a favorite app or a favorite website or maybe even a favorite film that you like to point
1: people towards. Gosh, that's a tough one. Because my favorite app is probably Instagram, which is totally <laughs> mindless uh, pleasure uh, of, of just looking at what other people are doing in their lives and things like that. You know, I, I think, moreover, probably the the favorite sort of bit of uh, and, and maybe it's more around uh, a book that really kind of uh, inspires me, is, is really um, cross-industry innovation. It's a, it's a tremendous book by Ramon Vollings and, and Mark Hellevin, and, and the, the thrust and the idea behind a, a place in Rhode Island called the Business Innovation Factory. And these are two places that really think about the concept of um, user experience, which to me I think about learner experience in our schools, And they also think about what we can borrow from other industries and bring back. And so that that's not really a website or, or an app. It's more just something that I I just love looking at is what can we learn from different places that we can bring back to our own environment. And, and I think that's the the piece to me that that kind of keeps me up at night is and why I really am starting to enjoy working with some people outside of education, not because I want to work outside of education. It's just I learn so much from people that we can bring back to education. So that's kind of my sort of media spot is I like playing around in that human centered design space and just seeing what we can learn and bring back to education.
0: That's perfect. I was going to ask you what the book that you would uh, would you would gift or uh, you would refer to people so that that you've that's all great. What's one thing that you do most days or every day that keeps you well and healthy uh, available to continue the work you do?
1: Uh, you know, I have a, a very, uh, annoyingly fit wife <laughs> who, uh, kicks me out to the curb every day and makes sure that we, we get out and, and, and keep our bodies healthy. Um, and I think that's the, the piece to me, I, I think she she also inspires me that way as well because she's a, a business owner and and she tries to make her business a little better every day. And I think that's something for for all of us is that um, that sort of you know making time for ourselves I think is really important and and making sure that we're not only mentally sort of fit and agile but physically fit and agile I think has has really been a help for me. So that's something that that we really prioritize. Uh, every day is just getting out there and, and doing something active, but also within uh, the context of our our careers, just trying to learn from from a lot of different people and and ask lots of questions.
0: Is there an organization or a person that really inspires you? You, you, uh, mentioned, uh, my Seahawks nemesis, the Patriots, but, uh, is there <laughs> someone else do you kind of look at and say, Hey, I think they're doing really good work and, and that inspires me to, to, to maybe be a little bit more like them or pr- continue to get better?
1: Yeah. You know, and I, I kind of mentioned them a bit earlier. I, I was lucky enough to go to a conference years ago called the Business Innovation Factory and you know I went as a I was a district principal of it, uh, of innovation at the time and and I went there and and I, I sat in a group of 500 innovators and and listened to to stories of people doing amazing things um, that were all based in the same concept of of human centered design and really thinking about the human side of things. And I think when I look at the 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 Biff, the Business Innovation Factory, that is a central focus to what they do. And now someone may say, well, that you know that's business, but but, you know, we're in the business of, of of serving students and of serving the adults that are with us. And I think that's a something for me that that was really sort of seminal and changing my perspective is, is rather than, you know, complaining about kids or, or wishing people would do this or doing that, actually really um, taking an, a stance of empathy and really trying to understand why that was happening so that we could co-create building solutions together. So I think that's the the, the sort of jam that keeps me going with, with some of the stuff that we do and, and makes me realize that, that everyone's doing the best that they, they can and know how. And so how can we start to discover those strengths, uh, and unearth them in different ways so that we can, can propel them forward in the future.
0: That's great. I had not heard of them, so I will, uh, I will definitely check That's them out. Another, um, another great yeah, that's great. Hey, um, you know, the book came out, uh, last year. I think it is now. Um, I'm interested to know what's, what's going on with the book and maybe what's, uh, some of the things that you, you're looking forward to. Um, I mean, in the coming, uh, coming months or maybe even uh, a little bit longer than that.
1: Yeah. So, um, the book has uh, been a pleasant surprise. And I think what's, um, been um, so positive about it is we really did take um, a, a user centered approach which with, with creating tools that empathized with the busy teacher and the busy administrator and and so we know that the idea of collaboration is uh, a great one. and for any organization that is a, you know trying to collaborate to improve their practice, whether it's in education or otherwise they they deserve the the highest of of kudos from all of us. But I think what we've really tried to do is make that experience very user friendly for the busy uh, and and overworked people that that work in our organizations, and I think that's been really pleasantly surprising to see the uptake of people using these tools to drive that reflective practice and connect their their actions to impact. So, so that's uh, that's been really neat. And I think going forward. Um, we're going to be working with more collaborative teams and more organizations and and also with leaders. And that's been the exciting piece as well, is that uh, we've yet to find a, a principal or a, a superintendent who, who doesn't love the idea of, of having their vision lead to observable impact, whether that's inside of education or outside of education, most organizations have a vision. And, and our, I think our questions around how do we, we make that vision lead from sort of from words to action to impact has really you know, resonated with some people. And so that's what I'm excited about is doing some of that leadership work with uh, along with the collaborative teams to kind of move them from from, from action to impact, which is super cool. Yeah, I I totally agree.
0: Let's say people are interested in learning and following uh, your work. What are some of the best ways for them to connect with you or to follow along?
1: Yeah, I'm uh I was a huge Twitter user before. I use it sometimes now. I find I'm I'm more uh, uh but I am still out there at, at Burke Learns. Um but I like when people just contact me directly and just um and that's what's been really cool is either through Facebook or through email at burklearns at gmail dot com um, is just really um connecting with people who have specific challenges and being able to say, hey, here's a tool that you can try, here's something that you can use and the only fee that i ask from people is to just give us feedback and let us know because one of the things that we're really uh, proud of is that our our tools were built uh, and co-developed with educators and every session that that i do um, i'll watch how people use the tools and ask for their feedback so that we can make them better and better and and so that's the if if people can contact me those ways that's the the best way and i'll give them a, a a personal response
0: do you know what? I, I really appreciate uh, the approach and the framework that you've presented. And I also really appreciate those tools that you just talked about where you can help, uh, you help to work through those ideals. So uh, I want to thank you so much for giving up a little bit of your time today for, for talking to us. Uh, I think people are going to get a lot out of this. So thanks so much, Cale.
1: Hey, Corey, thanks for having me. It was exciting to be here and uh, always fun to chat with you. And uh, look forward to connecting in the future.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intersection Education Podcast. Before you go, I'd like to recognize that the land where this interview took place is a sacred place that has a long history of human existence. This land has helped people like the Cree, Salto, Nisitapi or Blackfoot, Metis, and Dakota Sioux live well for thousands of years. Let us continue to live well and respect this land.